Our Father, we thank you that we get to be a part of your kingdom, a kingdom that is unshakable, a kingdom that will win in the end. And Lord, we thank you that in the midst of a broken and challenging world, that you are a refuge that we can run to and find shelter in and find hope in, Lord, even when things around us may appear hopeless. And Lord, now as we turn to Scripture and as we look at how you were building your kingdom 2,500 years ago and then take those principles and apply them into how we can contribute to building your kingdom here today in the 21st century, I pray that you'll give us wisdom, that you'll give us attentiveness to what your Spirit wants to say to us today, and that you'll give us a willingness not just to hear what you're saying, but to actually act upon it as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Among pastors, there is a particular joke, which I don't really like very much, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. It goes something like this. It says, you know what? Ministry would be great if not for the people. Ministry is great if not for the people. And some of you may be thinking, I can't believe they just said that. But it's, it's out there, um, so I might as well say it. But I think it's really a horrible joke for several different reasons. One of the reasons is for me, it's not my perspective at all. Because to me, you know, even though there are challenges anytime you're relating to people, at the same time, it's the people of Freedom's Church that really make ministry, ministry so enjoyable and so encouraging for me. I mean, I truly enjoy knowing you all and working with you all and seeing God work in and through our relationships. I enjoy that. But I think this quote does point to a reality that any time that you are working with people, it can be challenging. Because people, because of our, our, our selfishness and our greed and our pride and a host of other faults and sins, we complicate things. I mean, you, you, if you're alive and if you're breathing, you've probably recognized this at times, that people present challenges sometimes. I mean, if you've ever worked anywhere... You've probably experienced times where people are not the easiest to work with or to work for. I mean, especially if you have customer service in your background or retail or human resources. If you've ever been a student anywhere, you've certainly experienced times where people are not all that nice and sometimes they're downright mean. And even if you've worked with youngest of children, you realize that at a very early age, interpersonal conflict can begin and can erupt at any moment as you watch children, even who are super young, refuse to share with each other or fight with each other, pushing and shoving and shouting with each other, complaining that so-and-so isn't doing what they should be doing. It starts in an early age and it continues all the way through life. It's just a part of our human condition as sinful, broken human beings. And it makes it a challenge sometimes. Back to that joke about, you know what, ministry would be great if not for the people. The, the irony of that is that if you don't have people, you don't have a ministry. I mean, you can build a great-looking church, a church building. You can put together well-organized programs, and you can have great engaging music, and you can deliver a terrific sermon. But if there are not people involved in that process, and especially people who are growing closer to Christ— you don't have a ministry. You may have a hollow shell of a church building, and you may be able to do a lot of nice abstract things of, of preparing sermons and Bible studies and stuff, but ministry is about people. That's one of the reasons that we oftentimes say that discipleship happens best through the context of relationships. But we still face that difficult reality of when you work with people, 
there are oftentimes challenges. And this is a reality that we're going to look at today through the book of Nehemiah. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. We're seeing here in this series that he is a man who's setting out to rebuild a wall. As we're going to see today, as he rebuilds the wall, he's going to run into in this major people issues. You see, Nehemiah was a man who had been a cupbearer for the king of the Persian Empire. A cupbearer is a very important role in the empire. He lived in the king's palace. But he got word that Jerusalem, which was God's city of God's people, was still in ruins after being destroyed some 140 years earlier. His heart was broken over this, and he realized that God is calling him to do something about it. So he left the luxury of the king's palace. He went 900 miles to Jerusalem. And he helped organize the rebuilding of this wall. It would be an amazing thing to watch the teamwork taking place throughout the city. It's pretty much people from the whole city and the surrounding countryside all devoted themselves to working together to rebuild this wall. And walls in that era were incredibly important around cities for the city's protection and well-being. So they're working together. I mean, it seems to be going well at the beginning, but there are people issues that come up. First of all, we saw last week people issues from the outside opposition who didn't want to see the wall rebuilt. So they were physically threatening violence towards the workers. Nehemiah squelched that, at least for a time. But today we're going to see how there are people issues from within the people in Jerusalem. I'm going to start out reading verses 1 through 5 of Nehemiah chapter 5. It really lays the groundwork for the problem here. It says, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during this famine. Still others were saying, We have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So this is now a cry that's taking place. It's essentially a strike that, that the people are, are forming here against working on the wall. And this is probably taking place around a month into the rebuilding of this wall. And I want to outline what these problems are. First of all, we see that people are worried about food. They have large families who need to eat. But one of the realities is that as they work on the wall, they're not able to work their normal jobs. We all know that if you don't work, you don't make an income. And so they're worried about how are we going to get food? And this was especially an acute problem for the farmers because these farmers were taking time away from working their fields. And so they were worried about what's going to happen in a few months when it comes harvest time. Are we going to have any food at all? And so they're concerned. There's, there are more people who are saying, you know what? We are mortgaging our property here. They have to pay the bills. They have to buy food. And, and in order to buy food, they have to borrow money because they don't have enough. There's a famine and the, the prices are escalating. So they've mortgaged their houses, their fields, their vineyards. And when you have a society where a significant percentage of the population is mortgaging and going into debt in order to basically just simply survive, it's not a healthy situation. And the third problem here is that people were being buried by high taxes and high interest rates. You see, they would have to borrow money. They would have to mortgage their land. 
But what would end up happening is that as they were trying to pay off these taxes and stuff, they were just getting buried under high interest rates. That, you know what, they're very similar probably to our credit card interest rates today. That just, if you aren't careful, you get behind so quickly and you can't catch up. I mean, some things don't change. I mean, we look at these things and we're like, okay, we're 2,500 years later and still the same thing. Still interest rates, still taxes, still struggling to get by, still tr- trouble with debt. It's the same thing there. And, you know, some of them even had to sell children or other family members into slavery. And we may think that's really harsh because in our minds when we think of slavery, we think of what took place in America during the 17 and 1800s. And that was incredibly inhumane slavery. We have to recognize that what took place back here 2,500 years ago among these Jewish people was a little bit different. Not quite as inhumane. It was common practice that when someone owed a significant debt and they couldn't pay it off, they would essentially sell themselves or sell family members into servanthood. It was more like being an indentured servant than an inhumane slave. And when the debt was paid off, this this person was able to go free again. And so it was essentially um, a, a deeply committed servant here. But that's what people are doing. And we have this significant disparity taking place between the rich in Jerusalem and the poor. And the problem is there in that society is that the rich control almost everything, but the majority of the population was made up of destitute people who were living in poverty. There was very little middle class there. Let me give you an analogy using a sailboat. In a sailboat, you oftentimes have this keel down here that's made of something very heavy. It's, uh, you have ballast down there, which is that heavy lead or, or something else that's down there, in order to keep the sailboat upright. The problem is if you take the ballast out, the sailboat becomes very unstable and is very likely to capsize. Now, when you look at a large society, I believe that the middle class really serves as a ballast for the society because the middle class are people who are able to, to sustain themselves, to live relatively comfortably uh, without scraping by. Um, but the problem back in Jerusalem is they didn't have people who were able just to sustain themselves. You had the rich upper class who could. But the majority of Jerusalem was very poor. They were loaded down in debt. And these rich people who owned everything were not doing anything to help them out. And so what happens when you remove that ballast of people who are able to support themselves is that you're going to capsize pretty quickly. I mean, that's a dynamic that we see really around the world in societies that you see that massive disparity between the few who are rich and the majority who are living in poverty. It creates a very unstable society. And that's what we see happening in Jerusalem is that because of the economic disparity and because of so many people living in deep poverty, they weren't... They weren't sure what they were going to do next. And you imagine Nehemiah here. I mean, he's come in from the outside. He's come in to rebuild the wall. And, and suddenly he realizes this thing is much bigger than he originally imagined. I mean, you've probably had times where you're working on a project in your house or you're trying to repair your car. And, and you think you're going in just to fix one relatively little thing. Like you think, okay, an hour and I'll get this thing fixed. You get in there. And then you suddenly, suddenly realize, you know what? That little thing that I thought would be able to be fixed in an hour, it's actually a symptom of much greater problems. And you end up devoting the entire day or multiple days and a lot more money than you expected to fixing the problem. And that's kind of what was going on here for Nehemiah, I imagine. He set out to fix a wall and suddenly discovered 
so many more bigger, deeper problems among the people of Jerusalem. So let's see how he responded here, picking up in verse 6. He said, When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, You're exacting usury from your own countrymen. So we see here that part of Nehemiah's solution was that he stopped and considered what the best course of action would be. I think this stopping and considering what the best course of action is is very wise on his part because he said he was very angry. And we all know that when you are very angry in the heat of the moment, raging mad, it's not the time where it's really wise to open your mouth and say a lot or to do a lot right away. You need to take a step back and prayerfully consider what is the best course of action here. And that's what Nehemiah did. And I just, again, I put myself in his shoes. And I think about what that would be like. I mean, you're sitting there trying to build the wall. And he was a very passionate and driven man. And, and for those of us who have that type of personality where we are passionate and driven and want to accomplish goals, whenever anything happens to, to derail us from accomplishing those goals, it's easy to get very frustrated very quickly. And I imagine that was probably the case for Nehemiah. That may have been where part of his anger came from here. But I also think that for Nehemiah, as you read deeper into what's taking place here, and as you look in the subsequent chapters that we'll be looking at in future weeks, I think that for Nehemiah, he already recognized that his purpose there in Jerusalem was much bigger than simply building a wall. He was there to help restore the, God's people. Because it wasn't just a wall or a city that was broken down. It was God's people who were in trouble, who were in disarray, who were not following God as they ought to. So he was there to help restore and revive the entire people. And so for him in this case, this was actually an opportunity to do that work of not only rebuilding the wall, but to restore the people. I mean, he could have just blown right ahead and said, hey, look, we have this task at hand. We need to rebuild the wall. You guys just put your concerns aside and we'll deal with them later. Now, if he had said that, there would have been a mutiny. But instead, he was wise. And he began to address this issue because he recognized there are bigger issues here that we do need to address. And as I said, as we see later in this book of Nehemiah, he cares about more than just this wall. He cares about rebuilding a people for God's purposes. And so we see that after he stopped and considered what he needed to do, he then began to address the people who are causing the problem. And this is what we should always do. When we have a problem with someone, we need to go to the source. So he said he went to the nobles and the officials and he told them, you're exacting usury from your own countrymen. Usury is just an old-fashioned fancy word for very high interest. And he's saying, you guys, this is wrong. Now let's see what he does next here. He says, um, so, so he called together at that point a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are willing to sell your brothers only to, um, uh, now, now you are selling your brothers only to, for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Now, what Nehemiah was doing here was essentially pulling them into court because he realized this is a big issue that needs to be addressed because it's not just a personal private issue with these few individuals. It's an issue that's consuming the entire city. And for him to be confronting these nobles and these officials in this way was a huge deal. 
These were the leaders of Jerusalem. These are the most powerful, wealthy people who controlled the city. And these are the very same people that he'd already been partnering with to rebuild the wall. If you look earlier in the book of Nehemiah, you see that when he's beginning to rally the people, the first people he goes to to help, help organize them, he goes to the nobles and the officials to help them, to work with them to organize the people. So these had been his allies, and suddenly he realizes, you know what, they're helping the people with one hand, but with the other hand, they're stabbing the people in the back in order to get ahead of themselves with their greed. So for him to go confront these people, the most wealthy and powerful people in, in places of leadership in Jerusalem, that was a gutsy move. It, it's not without risks. I mean, think about it at your workplace. If you saw something that management was doing that, that you didn't agree with, and you ended up finding yourself in a place where you're confronting the entire management team at your work all at once, that would not be a very comfortable place to be, would it? Or for myself, uh, my immediate supervisors, the people who I really report to here at the church, is the church council, our elders, deacons, and deaconesses. That would be a big deal if I went to them and confronted them strongly on something that I believe that they were deeply in error about. You don't do that type of thing lightly. And for Nehemiah, as he's addressing this issue, and he wants to bring this to a larger body to help, help, help legislate what needs to happen here, this created added problems because the judges in that city are, are the prominent citizens and the leaders who are the very people he has a problem with here. So what does he do? Well, he, he basically calls together the common people to serve as the jury, and Nehemiah himself is going to serve as the judge here. He makes an accusation against them about how they are taking advantage of people um, for their own benefit. And it says that they kept quiet because there is nothing they could find to say. This is essentially their guilty plea. I mean, they're recognizing, you know what, Nehemiah, you're right here. We have been wrong. And I think as we see the progression of what's taking place in this passage, it's very evident that God is at work here. Because typically when people are confronted with sin, especially a big group like this who's been benefiting from it for a long time, people typically don't respond very well, do they? But here I believe that God is at work, as he's already been at work in this whole process, preparing the way to restore his people for his glory. And so let's move on in this passage to see what happens next. It says, Nehemiah says, as he's gathered the people there for this, this court, it says, so I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending money, lending people money and grain. But let this, the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses. And also the usury you are charging them, a hundredth part of the money, grain, uh, new wine, and oil. So here we see Nehemiah, he's confronting them in front of this large group of people, and he's saying, you know what, what you're doing, it's not right. And there is a beauty in what he's essentially saying here, especially if we read between the lines and assume the other things that are going on in this conversation, that they are doing something that's not right. There's a standard that they should be living by that they are not obeying. And that standard is the very word of God. You see, there, there are already laws laid in place by God that these people were breaking. There were laws that would prevent this, this, this high interest rate. They would prevent selling people into slavery to your fellow Jews. For instance, back in Deuteronomy chapter 26, we see um, verse 19. 
It says, do not charge your brother interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but not your brother Israelite, so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you put your hand to in the land you're entering to possess. So we see here that God creates a stipulation that you can charge non-Israelites interest, but you're not to, to, to charge interest to your fellow Jews. God says instead, if you will obey this, I will bless you. And the blessing you receive from me will be much greater than any wealth you would gain on the interest. And so God specifically said there, and he says many other places, do not charge them interest, yet the people of Jerusalem were charging high interest rates and burying their people in debt. Over in Leviticus, it says something else. It says, if one of your poor countrymen, uh, or if one of your countrymen becomes poor among you and sells himself to you, do not make him work as a slave. He is to be treated as a hired worker or a temporary resident among you. And so we see here a stipulation that God's put in place to prevent slavery among the Jews. That you could hire someone to have them work for you and help you and you pay them, but they aren't to be your slave. Yet we see once again here that the Jewish leaders have been going against that clear command and they've been enslaving their brothers and sisters uh, in the Jewish world. And I think that what Nehemiah is doing here is saying this is not right and essentially pointing back to the standard that God's already set is great for us today as well. There are many times I, as a pastor, have to deal with issues that, you know what, I really don't enjoy dealing with. They're difficult questions about moral things, about ethics, about um, is Jesus really the only way to God, about um, same-sex marriage or, or living together before marriage or, um, I mean, gossip and stuff like that. And they are not fun things to deal with. But the beauty of, of, of God's word is that we can always go back to Scripture and, and say, you know what, I'm not the ultimate authority here. All I'm doing is pointing to what God has already said. And that's what Nehemiah was doing. That's what we need to do in our lives. Nehemiah was pointing back to say, you know what, you need to go back to obeying God rather than just doing what benefits yourself. Because what is benefiting you here is destroying God's people. You see, when people are acting out of greed or out of selfishness, as these Jewish leaders were doing, it destroys unity. It, 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 it's the same thing today in families, in churches, in societies, that when we live generously and in a caring way for one another, putting each other's interests above our own, that is when we are going to be healthy. And we see here that, that, um, that Nehemiah calls them to give generously back to the people. It says, give them back their lands. Give them back their houses. Release the slaves. Forgive the debts. This is extreme generosity here, so it would seem. What Nehemiah is essentially doing is, is calling out something else that's back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It's called the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was something that came about every 50 years in, in the Israelite society when at God's command, every 50 years, any slaves would be set free, any debt would be forgiven, any land that had been sold or taken for mortgage would be returned to its original owner. And what Nehemiah is essentially doing here is decreeing that now is going to be a year of Jubilee. We're going to release the slaves. We're going to forgive the debts. We're going to return the lands. It's an act of extreme generosity. It would require sacrifice and humility for these leaders who've been getting rich at the expense of others. But it's a necessary step 
in order to restore the fortunes of, of the people of God in Jerusalem and to rebuild the unity that was fracturing very quickly. And one of the things I want to point out as we look at this passage and apply it to our lives today is the reality that sin needs to be dealt with courageously and wisely and graciously. When we have sin in our lives, when we have sin in, in, our, in, our, in our people, we need to address that. Now, if there's personal sin, uh, it's just between us and someone else or, or something that's not very public, it needs to be addressed personally. It doesn't need to be drawn out for everyone else to see. But there are times when there's gossip or, or disunity that may need to be addressed more broadly. And that's what we see Nehemiah doing here. I mean, he, he confesses his own role in this. He says, I and my brothers and my men are also lending people money and grain. He's, he, he's very humble here. He says, you know what? I've even had a part in this. My family has. But we need to stop this now. And then he calls people to repentance. And so we see here that, again, sin needs to be dealt with. If we just let it fester there, it's going to destroy unity. It's going to destroy lives. And again, the way you deal with it depends on the circumstance. And most things don't need to be drawn out in public at all. That's, that's certainly not a, a healthy way to deal with things. You go to the source. But we still need to deal with it courageously and wisely and graciously. Sometimes we think, well, our sin doesn't really bother anyone else. We need to recognize that, that sin has multiple dimensions. I mean, we have what we call the up and out triangle here at Freedoms that talks about the three key relationships. Sin not only affects our up relationship with God, it also affects our in relationship with other Christians. Because, um, one, sometimes our sin directly hurts other people. But sometimes it's indirect. The scripture uses an analogy of the body of Christ to describe uh, the, us, us as the people of God. And if you think of your body, if you cut off your foot or if you cut off your nose, you'll still live, but you're not going to be able to live quite as easily. You're not going to function quite as full as you could have otherwise. If you have a bad knee or a bad back, you know that all the parts of your body are very important for fully functioning. It's the same way in the body of Christ, that if one part of the body of Christ is being compromised by, by sin that is not being dealt with with humility and grace and repentance, then that body of Christ, is, that part of the body of Christ is being compromised and you are um, short-circuiting all that God wants to do in and through you. And also it relates to our out relationship with the world around us. The world around us is looking at us wondering, does Jesus really make any difference? And if we are living lives that really look no different from the rest of the world, the world is going to say, you know what? Jesus doesn't make any difference. That's why Jesus said the world will know that you are my disciples because of your love for one another. As, as the people around Jerusalem looked at what was going on there in the city, they were saying, you know what? They look just the same as us. The rich people are taxing the poor. The rich people are, are oppressing the poor for their own benefit. They're not making God um, look good at all with that. And we have a responsibility to represent God well. Let me ask another question uh, about this topic of sin. I have two pictures for you. Which one of these pictures, the, the house cat or the lion, do you think sin is more like? Personally, I think sin is more like, well, you could probably say either, especially if you don't like house cats. Um, I think it's more like a lion because the lion's nature is to kill. 
Now, you see sometimes where people try to take a lion or a tiger and, and tame them and bring them into their house as a pet, and, you know, it kind of goes well for a while, and then you see on, on the news or on some TV show about, yeah, that, that, that lion or that tiger just, just attacked and mutilated his owner, and everyone's like, I can't believe that happened. How could this happen? We, we, we took that lion, we loved that lion, we made that lion our own, and the lion ate at our table with us, and you wonder... <laughs> The lion slept in bed with me, and I mean, we loved each other. How could this happen? What's well, a lion? A lion's nature is to attack and to kill. And you may be able to suppress that nature for a while, but you're playing with fire there. It's the same way with sin. That sin, even though it may be inside, even though it may not be that apparent, it's still going to kill us at some point. Now, many times we, we treat sin more as a house cat. Because house cats... I mean, there are different perspectives. Here's my perspective. House cats at times can be kind of annoying. I don't like to get the fur all over me. Um, I don't like it when house cats make a mess all over the floor. Sometimes you have to lock your house cat into another room um, in order to stop the annoyances. And you know what? Sin's kind of that way too, where it makes messes sometimes. It kind of annoys us. We, have to, we try to lock it away sometimes. But I kind of like cats as well because you know what? They're kind of nice to cuddle with. They're kind of nice to hold. And sometimes our sin feels like that as well, that we like to cuddle with our sin. We like to enjoy it. It gets annoying sometimes, but we still we kind of enjoy it. We, love, we like it being in our house, in our lives. But we need to recognize that sin, yeah, it can be annoying. Yeah, it can be comforting and enjoyable at times. But ultimately, it's going to kill us. And that is why Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, he says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, your sinful nature. He says, put it to death. Don't just coddle it. Don't sit there and just kind of enjoy it. Don't just try to lock it away and hope it stays away and stuff. Don't just put up with it. Put it to death. You think about sin kind of like a cancer. If you have cancer inside of you, you either need to kill the cancer or the cancer is ultimately going to kill you. You don't just try to manage the cancer. You don't try to mask the pain of the cancer with Tylenol. You want to kill the cancer. And it's the same way with sin. And the way we kill sin in our lives is by the application of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. We don't kill sin just by working hard, just by accountability, just by discipline. Those can be helpful. But we deal with sin by applying the gospel to our lives. You see, we all, we all have sin in our lives. Nehemiah did. He confessed it. We all have sin in our lives. And Jesus came to pronounce the year of Jubilee. If you look into the New Testament, some of the things he said, he actually references the year of Jubilee, that he is the coming Jubilee, how he is the one who sets the prisoner free. He is the one who forgives us of our debt that we owed for our sin. He is the one who cancels any power that sin has over us. You see the passage there in Luke 4, the end, where it talks about he's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. That is reference to the year of Jubilee that Jesus is bringing. And so that's what he offers us, freedom from sin. And part of the ongoing process of crucifying sin in our lives is by applying Jesus there and, and, and accepting Jesus' love in those places, that we, those voids we want to fill with sin. Jesus' love is enough to satisfy us. And sin will always leave us empty and wanting more. So we see that when, when we have sin in our lives, we need to deal with it courageously and wisely and graciously. Now, I want to come back to this passage and see what took place next. The people, after they're confronted with this and they're asked to repent and give generously back to the people, 
they say, verse 12, we will give it back and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Nehemiah says, Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. Fast forward a little bit more. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. So we see here that, that God was obviously at work. And through the generous actions of the people, through the, through the courage of Nehemiah to confront this sin that was affecting everyone, he confronted it publicly because it was a public thing that was infiltrating the entire city. Because of his courage and because of the people's generosity, unity was restored. And the people of God, not just the wall, not just the work on the wall is continuing, but the people of God are being strengthened. It's the same thing for us today. That if we deal with sin graciously and courageously and wisely in our own lives, I mean, we're not called to be the sin police to point the finger at others. Um, we're called to deal with it in our own lives and in trusted relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ. But as we do that, as we are generous with our time and finances, as we're generous with our, uh, with our other resources, as we're generous in giving grace, we create a community that is based on unity and love, not based on what can I get out of this for myself. Now back to this idea of a sailboat. Because my Bible under the floor, but back to this analogy of a sailboat, looking at it a little bit differently, looking at um, the sailboat more as a church. Leaders like Nehemiah, leaders like these Jewish leaders in Jerusalem who, you know what, they had problems in their lives, but they repented, they, they accepted grace, and they gave graciously. They are like a ballast in a boat that can keep this boat moving forward and upright. They provide the stability in the midst of a shaking world. And everyone else, we all have a part to play. And if we can create a culture in our church family, in the kingdom of God more broadly, a culture of generosity, a culture of grace, a culture of, of representing God well, this metaphorical bow of, of the church and of God's kingdom will be a place where we truly enjoy being and a place where we um, see God at work in our midst in a place where we are seeing God's kingdom built right here on this earth. And my prayer is that we would be gracious and generous people who don't take God lightly, but who take him seriously and who receive his grace in our lives and pass that grace on to others. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you for your love for us because, you know what, we are people who are broken, who are easily turning away from you. But we thank you that when we were sinners, you died for us. We thank you that we can still receive your grace now. And we pray that you will help us to extend your grace to others as well. We thank you that you are a great Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.